Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast that explores how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brain makes us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 159. For complete show notes and episode transcripts, please visit my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash doc artemis and you can also leave comments on our facebook fan page today my guest is dr kevin mitchell from trinity college in dublin ireland dr mitchell has written a fascinating book called innate how the wiring of our brains shapes who we are The key idea of this book is that much of our behavior is innate, but this is only partly due to genetics. Events that happen during brain development are equally important. On page seven, he writes, we are different from each other in a large part because of the way our brains get wired before we are born. We will explore this idea in detail over the next hour, and we will also explore the surprising role of brain plasticity. I'll be back after the interview to review the key ideas and to share a few brief announcements. Have you ever considered hiring a personal coach? I'm currently training to become a certified professional coach, and I will begin accepting a limited number of clients in November of 2019. The key tool of coaching is asking empowering questions to help clients live more fulfilling lives. If you think you might benefit from this approach, you can learn more by emailing me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash coaching. Kevin Mitchell, it's great to have you on Brain Science. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Kevin, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I guess, my professional background. So I'm a neurogeneticist, although that's kind of a made-up word. It really means that I'm a geneticist and a neuroscientist. And I um, started my career, I did my undergrad degree in genetics in Trinity College in Dublin. And I became very interested in development there. I had a great professor who taught us Drosophila development. So I became really interested in how an embryo gets put together, basically how the instructions of to make an organism are encoded in the genome and how the fertilized egg and the embryo decodes those. So all the bits get put in the right places. And I went to UC Berkeley in California to do my PhD with Corey Goodman, who was interested in nervous system development. And that's when I really became more and more interested in the nervous system and did uh, my PhD there in neurobiology. And the question there was, how do different nerves find their way to the right place in the brain? So you've got nerve cells being born all over the embryo as it develops, but each of them starts just like a little round cell and it has to send out a connection somewhere into the brain and and that connection has to be steered to the right place. So it's a very complicated process. And of course, you've got that happening for, in our brains, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of neurons at the same time. So somehow the genome encodes the instructions to do that. And we were taking a a genetic approach in fruit flies to try and understand how their nervous system, which is obviously much simpler than ours, gets put together. And then following that, I, I stayed in the same field of developmental neurobiology, but I moved organisms. So I I moved to work with Mark Tessier-Levine, who was at Stanford, and with Bill Scarns, who was still at Berkeley. And we looked in mouse brains and, and developed a genetic method to look for genes that are involved in specifying neuronal connectivity in the developing mouse brain, which was very successful, I'm happy to say. And Following that, I took up a faculty position back at Trinity College in Dublin in Ireland, which I was very uh, fortunate. There was some good good timing involved there, I think, and set up my own lab doing mouse work and actually over the years started to become more and more interested in the human side of things, which I hadn't really done much 
with before that centered on a couple of things. One was in psychiatric genetics. So I was fortunate in Dublin to have some fantastic colleagues who were doing really, really good psychiatric genetics. And it became clear over time as some genes became identified that predisposed to risk for things like schizophrenia and autism and so on, that those genes were really neurodevelopmental genes that actually the genetics of neural development and the genetics of psychiatric conditions was really the same thing. There was a, a natural synergy there and we started collaborating on trying to figure out how the genetics of these conditions actually works and what are the types of genes involved and so on. I also set up a collaboration with some other colleagues in psychology around synesthesia, which is this strange perceptual condition where people can, for example, see colors when they hear music or, or words or taste words or feel a shape in their mouth when they taste something and so on. So there's all sorts of kind of a cross-wiring of the senses that we think might be going on there. And it's a genetic condition. So it runs in families, which obviously interested me as a geneticist. And we started doing some work on the genetics of that. I, I started to get into more human neuroscience, doing EEG experiments and magnetic resonance imaging experiments and so on, and lots of psychophysics. And so my interest started to get, I guess, a, a little bit eclectic. They're all really based around the the fundamental idea of how the genome encodes the instructions to wire a brain and then how variation in that program from person to person causes variation in how the brain is wired, whether that manifests as a condition like schizophrenia, which is obviously really clinically serious, or a condition like synesthesia, which is much more benign, but very, very interesting for lots of reasons, or indeed it just may manifest in terms of differences in our individual natures, in our intellect, in our personality traits, in our sexuality, all kinds of things that make us the way that we are. So ultimately, that kind of led me to starting to think about those questions in a broader sense and trying to, I guess, bring together what was known in various fields from developmental neurobiology to you know, systems sort of neuroscience to human genetics and, and human neuroscience around these conditions and see if I could make a conceptual framework that would help to explain the relationship between variation in genes and ultimately variation in our psychological traits and, and our behavior. And was that the driving force behind your writing your book, Innate? I've been at that sort of activity for a while now. And one of the reasons I started doing that actually was a bit out of a sense of frustration because I would go to, say, developmental neurobiology meetings and there'd be loads of fantastic work on, on worms and flies and mice and fish and humans would never be mentioned. <laughs> and then I'd go to a psychiatric genetics meeting and neurons would hardly be mentioned. And so it seemed like there was a, a gulf between disciplines where people had gotten into one of those disciplines through a particular route, but they didn't necessarily have an awareness of what was going on in the other disciplines. And just because I had had this sort of eclectic career path, I did have exposure to a lot of those different things. And, and I started blogging in, I guess, about 10 years ago now. I started a blog called the Wiring the Brain blog which was aimed at looking at these things, trying to make a synthesis of these different fields. And that went pretty well. And I found out in doing that, that I really enjoyed that kind of writing, actually. It's very different writing for a general audience than it is writing dry academic papers all the time. So ultimately, I thought, you know what, maybe there's enough stuff here to think about writing a book and pulling it together into one big framework. That's what I tried to do with Innate. That was kind of the motivation that led to brain science as a podcast, too, was I realized there were so many people like you writing really good books about science, but the information wasn't necessarily getting out to the potential readers. And that was really what got me going. And I realized after a while that I was never going to run out of material. No, no. <laughs> well, not these days. That's the thing. Trying to keep up is, is the hard uh, part. Would you like to give us just sort of a brief overview of innate? There's a couple of major sort of ideas, I guess, in innate. It starts with the idea that 
human nature generally is somehow encoded in our genome. There's something in our genome sequence that specifies making a being with a human brain. And that gives us, in a sense, all the innate aspects of human nature that differentiate us from chimps or monkeys or dolphins or cats or, or anything else. We have an innate nature just as much as any other animal species does. Of course, our nature includes, in particular, the ability to learn things and have language and develop culture and so on. So we're, we're much more sophisticated. We're not just instinctive beasts, but there's definitely some program there that specifies a lot of our behavioral tendencies and capacities as a species. So that's the, the normal sort of normative way of thinking about it. But of course, in genetics, the whole idea of genetics as a science is to think about variation. So anything that can vary will, anything that doesn't kill you will end up having some variation in the population. And that's true for, if you look at our, our physical bodies, we all have a program to make a human body with two arms and two eyes and a nose and so on. But the shapes and the forms and all are, are highly variable based on genetic differences in the genome. And the same thing is true for our brains. Our brains, there's a physical program to allow the developing embryo to wire the brain up in a human typical way. But there's variation around that in each of us. When we look at our psychological traits, those things about us, whether we're shy or outgoing or um, cautious or reckless or conscientious or lazy or, or gay or straight, smart or not so smart, all of those things that you would say characterize a given person are to some extent genetic. We know that that's the case from things like twin studies and family studies and so on that allow us to distinguish the effects of shared genes from the effects of shared family environment. Putting those two ideas together, the idea that we have variation in how our brains develop and there is genetic variation affecting our psychological traits, it becomes clear that actually the variation that's affecting our traits is the developmental variation. Variation in the way our brains develop affects our psychology in broad ways. Now, of course, it's not the only thing that affects our psychology, but it makes a major contribution to innate differences in those traits. And so a big part of the argument is that the blank slate idea, that we all come as blank slates that have no innate differences between us, there's really no support for that. It's just not a tenable idea anymore at all. And it also doesn't fit with common experience, actually. Everybody knows that people are different from each other. And any certainly any parent who has more than one child will know that they, that they come out different from each other and, the, and they stay different. <laughs> so there's a hypothesis there that variation in developmental genes can contribute to those traits. And what made it interesting to write this book now is that many, many people in, in various fields of behavioral genetics and psychiatric genetics are actually finding the genetic variants. It's not just that we show that the trait is, is heritable, that genetic variation is affected. We can actually find them. And when we do that, people are seeing that the types of genes that are affected are largely ones that are doing neurodevelopmental jobs. And so the empirical evidence is now supporting that hypothesis that our psychological traits really reflect variation in the way our brain developed. Now, that has a really interesting corollary, which is that genetic differences are not the only thing that cause variation in how our brains develop. Even if you take identical twins who have exactly the same genome, they have the same instructions to make the brain. Their brain won't turn out exactly the same, even at birth. They'll already be different from each other. And the reason is that all of those processes that have to happen, hundreds of billions of neurons have to be born. They have to migrate. They have to take up positions in different layers. They have to send out these projections through the brain. They have to connect with maybe thousands of different cells. All of those things are somewhat variable intrinsically. You can have exactly the same instructions and you won't get exactly the same outcome. And there's a metaphor that I refer to in the book about not being able to bake the same cake twice. It doesn't matter how good your recipe is, the cake is not going to be exactly the same the next time. You know, we're used to that because we can see that when we look at identical twins, we can see that in the structures of their faces, for example. They're based on the same instructions in the genome, but the outcome of each individual run of that program is slightly different. And that's true in our brains as well. So 
if it's true between mesogotic twins, identical twins, if there's just developmental variation affecting how the brain develops, then it's true in everybody. One of the arguments then in the book is that when we look to see how much of the variation in a trait is attributable to genetic differences, that's a term that we call the heritability of a trait. So say the heritability of a trait is 50%. That is, half of the variation that you see is due to genetic differences. If everyone was a clone, the variation would only be half as much. Oftentimes, there's an inference made that the other half must be environmental. There must be something outside of us, maybe our experiences, maybe other kinds of factors in the environment that affect us and that determine those psychological traits. And one of the arguments that I make in innate is actually a lot of that variation can be developmental in origin. It's intrinsic to the developing organism just because those processes are somewhat noisy. The genome can't encode the precise outcome. It just encodes some biochemical rules that, through almost magic, allow this thing to self-organize. But actually, you do get this variation in the outcome. So what that means is that you can have a genetic component and a, a developmental variation component that's making people different, which suggests that many of our traits are even more innate than the genetic evidence alone would suggest. Right. And that's a very important and probably the key idea of the book, I think. As a developmental biologist, that was the perspective that I wanted to bring and that I wanted to argue was really essential if you want to understand both how genes, variation in genes relates to variation in traits, then you need to consider development. That's the prism through which that relationship is realized. There's a potential relationship in the genome, but the actual output of that is determined by how development actually runs on that particular occasion. Right. I want to share a tool with you that will help you to take control of your time by handling repetitive typing tasks. It's called Text Expander, and it's available for both Mac and Windows. With Text Expander's intuitive visual interface, you can create snippets containing words, phrases, and even entire documents. When I got the opportunity to include Text Expander as an advertiser on Brain Science, I was really excited because this is a tool I literally use every day. If you would like to get 20% off your first year of Text Expander, just go to textexpander.com forward slash podcast and be sure to tell them that you heard about it on Brain Science. That's textexpander.com forward slash podcast. I want to talk a little bit about the genetics part of it. In the book, you early on emphasize the difference between human genomes and those of animals and that this is responsible, as you mentioned earlier, for the differences between us and them. Would you please talk about what the genome actually is and what it actually does? In each of our cells, we have some the genetic material, which is made out of DNA, and it's, it's aligned on the different uh, 23 pairs of, of chromosomes, which are just the linear molecule of the DNA broken up into 23 chunks. There's nothing special about them. They're completely arbitrary the way they're arranged. To start with a fundamental idea, what makes living things different from non-living things is that living things are organized. Right? They're organisms. And the matter that's in me is organized in a particular way. And to do that, in order to maintain that organization, that takes energy. That's why we need to, to bring in nutrition and so on. And when we stop doing that, that organization goes away, right? So we, we decay because we're, we're constantly fighting against the second law of thermodynamics, which says basically that things tend to fall apart unless there's something keeping them together. So we need energy to keep us together, but we also need information because the pattern is not just arbitrary. It has to be very specific. And that information is somehow encoded in the genome. And the actual nuts and bolts of the genome, the bits that do that are what we refer to as genes. And basically, a gene is a stretch of DNA that is a code or a recipe for a protein. And we have about 25,000 different genes in each of our cells that code for these 25,000 different proteins. And the proteins are things like hemoglobin or collagen or 
liver enzymes or neurotransmitter receptors or ion channels or metabolic enzymes. They're all basically little nano machines that do very particular jobs in each of our cells. And in some cases, they just keep cells ticking over. They do all the metabolism that every cell needs to do. They do things like replicating DNA and so on. And then some genes are specific for some cells. So hemoglobin, that gene is present in every cell, but the protein is only actually made from that gene in our blood cells because we don't need it anywhere else. And, and it carries oxygen around in our blood. And collagen is made in our skin cells and neurotransmitter receptors are made in our neurons and so on. So the challenge for the developing organism is that it starts out as a single cell a fertilized egg, and it has one copy of the genome, and then that, that cell divides. Now, each, each cell, the two-cell embryo, starts already to become different from each other. And they do that by turning on some genes and turning off others. So they're making some proteins and making others. So each cell has a kind of a profile of those 25,000 genes or proteins that it's actually making at any time. And then as the embryo develops and, and more and more, you get more and more differentiation of those tissues from each other. You get the guts differentiating from the muscles, differentiating from the nervous system. And then as the nervous system continues to develop, you have different types of neurons, different, the forebrain differentiates from the hindbrain and so on. And all of that is controlled by which genes are turned on and off in any given cell in response to signals that they're getting from other cells in the embryo that tell them, in a sense, where they are and what they should become. So that's the process of development, really, is that all those cells differentiate from each other. And then in the brain, they do things like migrating and, and connecting with each other. And again, those processes are also controlled by particular genes that encode proteins that may act as a signpost to certain cells to say, okay, you guys should project your nerve fibers this direction. And those particular cells will have a receptor protein that's on the lookout for that signal and that makes them make a beeline for it. So it's insanely complex and it's the job of the field of developmental neurobiology to try and figure out how all of that happens. What are the nuts and bolts? When we talk about a gene in terms that I've just been describing now, the sort of the molecular biology terms, we're talking about the unit that codes for a protein that may be expressed in these cells and not those cells. Now, the tricky bit is that the word gene also means something completely different to that. And its original meaning, in fact, was in the science of heredity, which is trying to understand how traits are passed from parents to offspring. And of course, Gregor Mendel started this science in studying pea plants and whether the peas had green or yellow coats or were wrinkled or smooth and, and tall or short and so on. So he, he proposed the word gene, the idea that there was something physical that was being transmitted from parent to offspring that controlled, say, whether you, you had wrinkled or smooth pea shells. The tricky thing is in trying to figure out to reconcile that idea of a gene, a unit of heredity, with the molecular biology of idea of a gene, which is a piece of DNA that codes for a protein. And the key thing there is variation in the gene. So you could have a mutation that changes the DNA code even very slightly, say in the gene that codes for hemoglobin. You can have a mutation that means it changes the way the protein is put together, and that variation is the gene for sickle cell anemia, which is what happens if your hemoglobin doesn't work very well. So you have the normal gene that codes for hemoglobin when it's functioning right, and then you can have a gene in the other sense of the word, something that can be inherited, which is really a variation in that molecular biology unit. And either version of the gene, the key idea is variability. Well, yeah, from a molecular biology point of view, it's actually not the variability. It's the idea that, that this thing is the bit that makes this protein. And I guess what's variable there is whether it's turned on or off in different cells. From a heredity point of view, what most people think about as genetics as opposed to molecular biology, it's the variation that you're inheriting that's the key thing. And so all of us inherit millions and millions of genetic differences, these variations in our genome. And actually, most of them don't do anything. But a few thousand of them may affect one of these 
protein coding units. And they can cause something very drastic like what I just described that knocks out the function of a protein. Most of them don't, but they can change its function a little bit or they can affect how much it's expressed and when it's expressed and in which cells and so on. So that variation then, what we inherit, the differences between my genome and your genome, ultimately then manifest as this developmental program plays out because some of my little proteins that tell nerve cells where to go are expressed slightly differently or work slightly differently in in me when I was a developing embryo versus the way yours worked in, in your brain. And ultimately, then the outcome is is slightly different. Let's take these two terms. If we say that a trait is genetic, what does that really mean? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. So actually, the word trait itself implies some variation. So we would think about eye color as a trait, because it varies across the population. We don't think of eye number as a trait, <laughs> right? So, but eye number is very genetic. Of course, the fact that you have two eyes is dependent on the program of your genome that specifies you having two eyes. It's the same in everybody. So when we say something is genetic, it implies in a sense a comparison group. If you're, if you're talking about a trait, then what we're really interested in is that variation in a trait is genetic. And that is, it's linked to genetic variation. That's the key thing. So we get a, there's a typical shorthand, you know, we would say, okay, intelligence is genetic, right? What that means is some of the variation in intelligence that we see across the whole population is due to genetic differences or variation between people. And the shorthand doesn't do us a lot of favors, actually, because it's easy to extrapolate further than you should from that. So when you hear the phrase genetic, it doesn't mean that there's, and in the context of a trait, it doesn't mean that there's a gene for that particular trait. Well, yeah, so that's another phrase that's easily confused, I think, the gene for, and it's very, very widely used, of course. What does it mean to have a gene for something? Well, if it's something simple like sickle cell anemia, then, yeah, there's a gene for it. The hemoglobin gene and mutations, various mutations that affect it can cause sickle cell anemia. And that's a, that's a reasonable shorthand to use there. But for intelligence, we wouldn't say there's a gene for intelligence because it's affected by variation in thousands of different genes, at least thousands. And each one of those may be having just a tiny, tiny effect on its own. So collectively, you could say, these are the genes, plural, for intelligence. But even that isn't quite right because it suggests some specificity in that relationship. And it's not necessarily the case that when there's a variation in a particular gene that affects something like intelligence, that it doesn't affect something else. In fact, it's quite unusual for any particular gene where there's a variation that affects one psychological trait in particular, it's liable to affect lots of other ones as well. It's just that the other ones that it affects may be different from the other ones that another variant will affect that also affects intelligence. So you can get a pool of variants that collectively affect intelligence and individually, each of them may also be affecting lots of other things. A key idea here is that the kind of inheritance that we learned from Mendelian or Mendel's genetics, like eye color or sickle cell anemia, that's actually pretty rare. That's right, yeah. Most things can't be described in terms of a single genetic difference. Yeah, exactly. And, and there was a big sort of a, a realization of that fact that happened in the, in the 1930s or so when people were comparing what Mendel was talking about with what Darwin was talking about. And Darwin's description of evolution was of a very gradual process. There weren't sudden changes. You didn't suddenly go from being very tall things to being very short things or so on. It was a much more gradual process. Yet Mendel had very discrete categorical kind of, of genes that mapped to very particular traits. And the way that those things could be put together was by just understanding that actually if you have a, several genes that act like Mendel's genes, they are discrete unto themselves, but they act collectively on a trait, well, then you'll get 
gradual variation in the trade. You'll get continuous variation, the sort of normal distribution of values that we see for height or intelligence or most things that we can measure. And that reflects the fact that there's lots of genes at play and we don't fall into two categories, tall or short. We, you know, we span a whole sort of um, continuous range. And that's how evolution can then proceed gradually, not in big steps. On brilliant science, we often talk about the value of learning a new language, but for most of us, it can be hard to find the time. That's where Babbel comes in. It's a language learning program that you can do in convenient 10 to 15 minute chunks. It includes interactive dialogues so you actually learn to speak the language. Another cool thing is that you can do it on your desktop or use the mobile app. And it syncs between all your devices so you can work on your new language whenever you have a few minutes. There's lots of different languages to choose from. You can try Babbel for free. Just go to babbel.com or download the Babbel app. So try it for free. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com or download the app for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Let's return to another of the key ideas in your book, which was the fact that most traits are only partly genetic doesn't mean that the rest of the variation is due to the environment or nurture. So what's going on? Well, so there's been an assumption in the field of behavioral genetics for a long time that what wasn't genes must be environment. So say you do like a twin study. The idea of that is... You may have observed that a particular trait runs in families, okay? So tall people tend to have tall children or uh, intelligent people tend to have intelligent children. But you also could observe that rich people tend to have rich children. (laughs) And so what we need to find is a way to distinguish the similarities due to shared genetics versus a shared family environment. And one way to do that is with twin studies, although there's lots of other ways to do it that all pretty much coincide on the same answers. But the idea would be if you look at lots of pairs of identical twins and you see how similar they are to each other for a trait like height, for example, and then you take lots of pairs of fraternal twins who are just like regular siblings, they're only 50% identical to each other in the DNA variants that they carry because they arise from two separate fertilized eggs, whereas uh, monozygotic twins arise from one fertilized egg that splits. So if you have many pairs of identical twins and many pairs of fraternal twins, you can measure how similar they are for your trait. And if the identical twins are much more similar, that suggests that it must be genetic effects that are causing that because the family environment effects should be common. Both situations, they grow up in the same family. Now, some assumptions that have to be made for twins, but like I said, you can do this in just general family members or even actually only distantly related people and you get the same kind of answers. What you can do using some mathematical modeling is figure out how much of the variation that you see in a population is due to genetic differences. And that is a term that's called the heritability. It's very, very widely misunderstood. It has a very particular statistical meaning. It refers only to the variation in a population. It doesn't refer to the mean of a population, and it doesn't refer to the absolute value in an individual. So if I say height is 80% heritable, that doesn't mean 80% of my height came from my genes and 20% from something else. It just doesn't apply. It just That's a meaningless statement. What it means is across the population that we did our study in, 80% of that variance that we can measure mathematically, basically the width of the bell curve, is due to those genetic differences. And if, like I said earlier, everyone were a clone, then that bell curve would be very, very much smaller. And so for height, the bell curve would be really, really tight if everybody were a clone. For intelligence, it would be narrower than it actually is, but not as narrow as for height. So intelligence is is quite heritable as well, but not as heritable as height. 
And so when you do those uh, experiments, then first thing you get is a number for the heritability. Now, there's a few things to say about that. One is there's nothing magic about that. It's not, it's not like, you know, a physical constant. There's, it's not a law. It's an observation about the population that you studied. For example, it can change if environmental factors change. So in a population where there's equal access to high-nutrition food, then height becomes very highly heritable. And the reason is there's not much environmental variation affecting it. So most of the differences that you see are due to the genetics of the person playing out as everybody effectively can reach their genetic potential of height because they all have access to high nutrition food. In an environment where there's not that equal access to food, then whether or not you have access to food becomes a big part of how tall you end up being. So heritability is not a constant. It, it relates to the variation in the populations that you've actually studied. Now, the other thing that you get is whatever's left. The flip side of that is if a trait is, say, 60% heritable, well, then that means 40% of the variance is not due to genetics. And that's where people have assumed that it must be due to the environment. And that's what it's, it's been called statistically. That's the environmental term. If you're doing a study that involves families or even adoption studies, for example, are very good for this, then you can determine of that bit of the variance that's non-genetic, how much of it is due to growing up in one family versus another. And so if you look at twins who were adopted away from each other, for example, for lots of psychological traits, for psychiatric conditions, the effect of being reared in one family or another on the variation is very small. It's really surprisingly little, actually, and sometimes it's zero, meaning that monozygotic twins, for example, who were reared in different families are about as similar to each other for these traits as they would have been if they'd been reared in the same family. Very surprising result, but very, very well replicated, extremely robust result. So then you're left with another question. Okay, if it's not this shared family environment, then what is it that's causing the rest of the variation? Why aren't twins who are in the same family exactly the same as each other? And that term has been called the non-shared environment. And in, in the psychological and behavioral genetics literature, the inference has been that that is accounted for by these sort of idiosyncratic experiences that we have that can affect our traits that might be in a twin study, something that happens to one twin but not the other. Now, I've never bought that explanation because it's a kind of a special pleading in a sense that if an experience that I have can affect me, why would it only be the case that it could affect me if it didn't happen to my co-twin? And if it did happen to my co-twin, then that should show up in the shared family environment effect because we would have been exposed to the same family environment, the same overall environment, and it doesn't. So there's not a good principled reason to think that some types of experience that you have outside the home, for example, can affect you while ones inside the home can't. And then the other thing is that, of course, people have looked for systematic effects in the environment and tried to associate them with all kinds of variation of personality traits and come up empty, pretty much. So there's actually not much evidence that there are any at least systematic environmental factors that we can point to that explain the rest of that variation, which is part of the reasoning why I think we need to look to this other source of variation that's often been overlooked, which is this inherent stochastic developmental variation, which we know happens when we look at the anatomy of the brain because we can see it in the physical structure of the brain, even between identical twins or people working in, in mice or flies, as I used to, you can see it even within an animal, on two sides of an animal or in multiple segments of an insect, for example. Neuroanatomically, you can see that noise play out in the connectivity of the brain. And so it makes sense that it would play out too in the, in the behavior. And now we know that that is, in fact, the case. We have some good examples of that happening. We've determined that the part that's not heritable can still be innate right? Because if it's not the environment, it's something innate. And you're arguing that that, that something happens probably during development. But it's not due to nurture. Not due to nurture. And yet, it's not the case that I think nurture does nothing. 
And in fact, if we go back to this finding that the shared family environment has very little effect, that what family you grow up in has very little effect on those psychological traits, then I think what's really important is to ask, well, okay, but what are these psychological traits? What are these things that psychologists are measuring? A measure of something like extroversion or conscientiousness or agreeableness risk-taking. There's hundreds and hundreds of different personality traits that can be measured. And the reason that they're used is that they're fairly stable things about a person, right? That's why we call them traits. If they were varying from moment to moment, then we wouldn't use them because they wouldn't have any descriptive power and they wouldn't have any predictive power, which is what we expect from a label like that. If you, if you say somebody's shy, you can infer something about their past behavior and predict something about their future behavior in any given sort of circumstance. But those traits are just really very broad patterns. They reflect very broad tendencies or predispositions. They don't determine our actual behavior on a moment-to-moment basis because on a moment-to-moment basis, we're not in any given situation. We're in some very particular situation, and all of our life is one particular situation after another. And of course, we learn from our experience. We adapt to those experiences that we've had. We adapt to our environment, and we develop characteristic habits and other aspects of our character that are more idiosyncratic and not necessarily as quantifiable as these broad personality traits. So the way I think of that relationship is that the personality traits are innate predispositions set an initial sort of range of behavioral tendencies, a certain kind of tuning of things like, yeah, are you, are you risk averse? Are you very sensitive to, to threats? Are you very responsive to rewards or to punishments? Are you good at setting long-term goals versus short-term goals and, and so on. So all of those things can feed into and manifest as patterns of behavior in different people. But they play out in an experience-dependent way. As a child develops, they start to react to their environment, but they also start to shape their environment. Even the way that they are shapes the responses that other people have to them. It shapes the behavior of their parents and the way that they treat them, of their peers, of their siblings, of their teachers, and and so on. So the child is an active force in creating its own environment and also has some idiosyncrasies in the way that it responds to its environment. So for one child, one particular thing may be very salient and may catch its attention and be very motivating. And for another child, it may not have any interest in it whatsoever. And so that may set these two different children down a different route. You know, one of them may just absolutely love kicking a ball and the other one couldn't care less. You get these sort of interests that then get reinforced. You get, of course, aptitudes that get reinforced and you get some reinforcing of the manifestation of these personality traits as habits. So an innately shy child may not obviously tend to play with other children as much. They may therefore develop the habits of being on their own more and and so on, whereas an outgoing gregarious sort of child may have the exact opposite happen. The way I think of the relationship between these innate traits and our actual behavior leaves loads of room for effects of experience. In fact, it's manifested through those experiences. So the argument would be that just like when we're trying to understand how variation in genes relate to the outcome, we have to take a developmental trajectory. Well, I would say the same thing for understanding how our innate predispositions influence our character and our habits, which is what people see in someone's day-to-day behavior. You have to understand the trajectory that a person's life has taken, which is influenced by those innate predispositions, but not determined by it. So is that the reason why we see when we measure, say, something like intelligence, it actually seems to become, I may be miswording this, but more inherited as we get older? Yeah, it's a weird statistical effect there, which is if you measure, if you do, say, a twin study or a family study or an adoption study of IQ, and you, so you measure IQ in, say, children, then what you'll find is there's a big genetic effect. The trait is quite heritable in children, but there's also a shared environmental effect, which means what family you are in does have an effect on your IQ when it's measured as children. The observation that's been repeated many times is that if you take 
people and measure their IQ as adults, then that effect of the shared family environment seems to have disappeared. And as a result, proportionally, the heritability is a higher number, right? If it used to be 60% and now, you know, some extra variation due to what family you were in has gone away, then that 60% becomes 70% of the variation that's left. So the explanation for that, and it's speculative because people don't really know, but the explanation is that there are effects while you are in the bosom of the family that have to do with, say, whether your parents make you do your homework or not. And that can show up when you're taking these IQ tests. But those effects are short-lived. They're not actually making you smarter. They're making you better at taking the IQ test when you're a child. But the sort of innate differences will will ultimately manifest later on. That's only one interpretation. And, and I don't want to over-egg that because it, like I said, it, it is somewhat speculative. And it's also the case, of course, that intelligence is not fixed. And I don't want to give that impression at all because as an educator, the reason I educate students is to make them smarter. It's not just to that they know some facts about genetics or some facts about neuroscience. You know, the point of education is to make people better at thinking and better at learning and better at discerning things and working things out, all, all of the practical elements that we would say are described by the term intelligence. And it's very clear that intelligence is boosted by education because, of course, the IQ tests that we give to children are much easier than the ones that we give to adults. So education does lift people's intelligence. It may not do that equally, some children may be better prepared to benefit from that than others. And some people may have innately an intellectual potential that's greater than others in the same way that they have a potential for height that's greater than others. But, you know, again, as an educator, uh, I would say that a, a rising tide lifts all boats, even if eventually some of them still sit higher in the water than others. What about brain plasticity? Well, it's an interesting term and, and it's often phrased just as you've done it boldly, just like brain plasticity. And it's a term that has entered the public lexicon, I think, thanks to lots of really interesting studies that have shown that the brain is is not fixed. It can change itself. And of course, that's not a surprise to any neuroscientist. That's what the brain is for. That's how learning happens, is the brain changing itself in response to experience and in a way recording that experience as for example, changing the weights between connections of neurons in the same way as, as weights are changed in an artificial neural network when they're doing deep learning, for example, and they're learning things. And the outcome of that learning is that the network then responds differently to the same input over time. And so that's how we adapt to our environments. That's how we learn from experience and so on. The question is whether there's any evidence that those kinds of effects of brain plasticity can feed back to change our traits, the tuning of those different circuits that control something like risk aversion or reward sensitivity or punishment sensitivity. I think the answer is probably that it can, but it may also be the case that it doesn't tend to. And the reason it may not tend to do that is what I was talking about earlier, that we're not just passively responding to random experiences, we're shaping our own experiences, we're shaping our own environments in ways that tend to have the exact opposite effect. They tend to amplify those initial differences. So if brain plasticity is shaping those traits, it may be doing it in exactly the opposite way that people would think of it. Rather than being an environmental thing that works against genetics, it may be actually a tool of nature in part of the mechanism by which those innate predispositions ultimately manifest as patterns of habits and character. Dr. Norman Doidge, who's very well known for his book about brain plasticity, said when I interviewed him many years ago that the, the dark side of plasticity is that it's really easy to get into a rut. Well, absolutely. And of course, that's exactly how, um, how habit formation happens, is that we, um, you know, we start doing things. We look at the outcome of our action. We see, yep, that worked out pretty well. I'm going to do that again. And then the, the weights that sort of represent that option in our brain get upweighted. And the next time we're in that situation, that particular option becomes a more 
um, attractive one for us to execute if we're choosing between different actions. So yeah, plasticity, yes, it leads to habit formation. Of course, it leads to things like drug addiction and other addictions. So there's definitely a dark side to it. Yeah. So Kevin, what have I left out? Well, I think we've covered a lot of the basics. Um, the, you know, I've given you, I guess, the the broad framework of trying to think about how how our innate differences come about and how they and how they manifest in the emergence of ourselves. I guess. Well, I guess the only other thing to say is that. In the book, there's a number of chapters that look at different types of psychological traits like intelligence, sexuality, perception, neurodevelopmental conditions, and personality traits, actually. And so in each of those, what I try to do is build a kind of a framework that I think, from my perspective, makes sense and can accommodate all of the varying evidence that we get from these different disciplines. And of course, we're at a very early stage of filling in the details of all of those things. And and really, the book is not attempting to do that because we know just a kind of a sketch. And that's what I've tried to provide. I guess the one thing that's interesting maybe to talk about is the implications of that. And what does that mean for thinking about what makes people different from each other? What does it mean for education or or for genetic prediction of traits? And that's become a, a huge issue these days, the idea that we may be able to genetically predict from someone's DNA sequence, you know, what their intelligence is going to be or something like that. And one of the arguments actually from the book would be that while we may learn more about the genetic differences that affect a trait like intelligence, in fact, we inevitably will learn more and our predictive power will increase, it will always have a limit because of this developmental variation that is completely intrinsic to the developing organism. It's nothing to do with the environment. It's nothing to do with genetics. It's an inescapable variation that is completely unpredictable by its very nature, which places a firm limit on the precision that we could ever get from genetic predictions. And that's true for all of our traits, but it's especially true for psychological traits, because while they're strongly genetic, they're only partly genetic. And a lot of that other variation may be this randomness. So I think there's a there's an interesting point there. And oddly, I find it a comforting kind of a point. <laughs> the idea that, you know, no matter how good our genetic knowledge gets, there's going to be something quintessentially unique about each person that science can't predict. So if I had a clone, it would not turn out to be me. No, it would be as different from you as a as a monozygotic twin would be. Of course, it would look a lot like you, but but monozygotic twins are, are quite different from each other personality wise and in in other ways. What advice would you share with students that might be interested in getting into this field? My advice would be to read widely. If you get into a field, usually what happens, of course, you you know you do a degree, you're already starting to to specialize in you know psychology or neuroscience or genetics, and then you do a PhD, and then you get really specific because you have to make progress on some particular problem, and and of course you have to focus on that. But I would say that there's a danger there for individuals, and there's a danger for science in general that. As each field learns more and more, we're drilling down into our separate silos further and further. And that's fine. That's how we make progress on the details of any field. But occasionally, you, you have to pull your head out of there and look around and realize what's happening in, the, in these other fields. And at least for me, I find that really intellectually stimulating. I, I always found it difficult to maintain the discipline to be really, really focused on just some very, very specific problem. Of course, loads of people spend their careers doing that and they make fantastic progress and huge contributions to science. And I'm very glad they're out there. It just didn't suit my own personality, I guess. That's the way I'm wired. But for students, you can learn so much. It'll it'll save you time if you, you know, say you're doing some neuroscience and, and you're aware of some kind of a, say, a, you know, a genetic circuit or the way a business works or something like that, the way a population explosion happens. There are mechanisms of things that have been found out in one field or another that can be applied in another field. But if you don't know about them, 
then you'll end up trying to reinvent the wheel or just banging your head against a wall when a you know a systems engineer could look at your data and go, oh yeah, that's an oscillator, that's a that's a coincidence detector, that's a whatever it is. I guess I'm a big fan of some interdisciplinary breadth and actually as with my other hat on as the dean of undergraduate studies at trinity college in dublin that's one thing that we're trying to institute there is is that our students while they still get a lot of disciplinary rigor in their chosen fields they also get exposure to other types of knowledge and different perspectives to hopefully broaden their minds and and help them um, see a little further I actually got an email recently from someone thinking about going to college and wanting to know about how he should get into neuroscience. And I actually wrote back to him something very similar to what you just said. In fact, I said, I'm not sure that you really want your undergraduate degree to be in neuroscience. You might be better off to get some broader skills first because once you get narrowed, it's like it's hard to get unnarrowed, right? <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is that neuroscience means different things to different people. So some courses on neuroscience are very heavily slanted towards human cognitive neuroscience and imaging and so on. And in fact, a lot of psychologists, I think, when they think of neuroscience, to them that means neuroimaging. But of course, there's all tons of tremendous work going on in, in animals and model organisms and that ties into a rich literature on ethology and animal behavior and evolution and, and all those things. So, yeah, I'm in favor of a, of a broad grounding that, I guess, lets people at least see the relationship between those different fields. So, if you're doing single-cell electrophysiology, what's the relationship between that and fMRI, you know, the level of activity that we see in a, in a magnetic resonance image, imaging scanner? You know, if you're doing behavior in, in a human, what is the relationship to what you can do in an animal in a lab test? And all of those things are difficult to see if you just jump into one of those areas too early, I think, and end up being sucked down the rabbit hole. And that's one of the things that makes doing this podcast so rewarding is that I get to talk to people that are doing a wide variety of approaches. So I really appreciate that you took your time to talk with me today, and I just want to thank you for that. Okay. Well, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Thanks very much. I want to thank Dr. Kevin Mitchell for taking the time to talk with me. I highly recommend his book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. I recommend it to listeners of all backgrounds. I'm going to take a few minutes to review a few key ideas, including one that we didn't actually have time to discuss. In my introduction, I said that the key idea of innate is that much of our behavior is innate, but that it's only partly due to genetics. Events during brain development are equally important. But I want to start out by reviewing some basic genetics. In the decades since the Human Genome Project, most educated people have become aware that the human genome sets us apart from other species, but there are some common misunderstandings about what our genome actually does. It encodes a program for building our body, including our brain. It's not a blueprint. The genome does not encode a person. So if we say a trait is genetic, it doesn't mean that there's a gene for that trait. Most traits are determined by a wide variety of genetic factors. And in fact, most traits are only partly genetic. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the variation is due to variations in environment or is the result of nurture. Much of what happens is actually developmental. And actually, the variations in behavioral tendencies and capacities are often more innate than the genetic effects alone would suggest. Dr. Mitchell also mentioned the importance of twin studies. When we study monozygotic twins, they start out with the exact same genome, but they don't turn out to be exactly the same. Studying them helps scientists to determine how much of a given trait is actually genetically determined. A typical number is about 50%, but at the same time, it has been shown that the childhood environment usually has very little effect. 
That's how scientists know that they needed to look for a missing element. I want to take just a moment to review the term heritability. Heritability is the amount of variance in a trait that is attributed to genetic difference. As Dr. Mitchell mentioned today, it can only be measured within a population, not in an individual. And it can actually change. It's not a constant. Now, one thing we didn't talk about during the interview is the fact that heritability is not the same thing as heredity or inheritance. Heritability measures all the genetics influences of a trait, but not all of these are actually inherited. For one thing, multiple genetic factors combine in each new embryo, and also new mutations occur. So a person can have a mutation that causes them to have a particular disease, for example, without having inherited that from their parents. So it's genetic, but it wasn't inherited. I know it's kind of confusing. We didn't have time to talk much about this during the interview, so if you want to get a better feel for the genetics, and especially why mutations are so important, I highly recommend that you read Innate. Another important idea is expressed on page 23. It is not the case that genes establish the initial wiring pattern and everything else depends on experience. The genetic program of brain development entails all the growth and maturation that occurs after birth, just like for other parts of the body. The genes tell the body how to build the brain. So twin studies have established that behavioral characteristics are largely but not completely inherited. Many people assume that the rest is determined by the external environment, but this conclusion is not supported by the evidence. So what causes the rest of the difference? What is this missing third component that Dr. Mitchell described as, you can't bake the same cake twice? Again, remember that the genome is a recipe, not a blueprint. So this third component is called developmental variance, although he didn't actually refer to the word variance during our conversation. This developmental variance is not due to nurture. What happens is that the egg has a brand new genome, and that genome includes mutations. And then there's small differences early on that get magnified, especially when a brain is being constructed. So again, this variance is internal. It's not due to environmental factors. By internal, I mean that it includes mutations and chance events during development, which is why he said that brain development is probabilistic. So before I close, I want to emphasize again that saying that something is innate doesn't necessarily mean that it's genetic. Let's take one concrete example that doesn't have to do with behavior, and that is handedness. There is a strong genetic component to handedness, but it's not entirely genetic. So what about brain plasticity? When I asked Dr. Mitchell this question, he focused on the fact that brain plasticity actually amplifies difference because Throughout our life, we make choices that are sort of based on the personality that we started out with and the traits that we started out with. If we're good at sports, we do sports and we get better at sports. If, if we're not, we do something else. And this was what Norman Doidge described as when you go skiing, if you get stuck in the, the ruts in the snow and it gets harder and harder to ski someplace different. That's the reason why it can be hard to change habits. And if we do want to change them, we have to figure out a way to do it in small steps. So this is a really rich book. The name of it is Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are by Kevin Mitchell. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Don't forget that you can get complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis, and you can leave comments on the Brain Science Podcast 
Facebook fan page. Before I tell you about next month's episode, I want to share a few reminders. First, I want to thank those of you who support my work financially and those of you who help by sharing the show with others. I'm still giving out Amazon gift cards to anyone who sends me a screenshot of their iTunes review. Just send it to brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. There are several ways that you can support the show financially. There is a premium subscription that allows you unlimited access to the entire library going back to 2006. Premium subscribers also get all the episode transcripts, including those for new episodes. The premium subscription is popular with newer listeners, while longtime listeners often prefer Patreon because that allows you to choose the amount that you contribute every month. If you give at least $3 a month, you get episode transcripts. And if you give $10 a month, you can get ad-free audio content. Both premium and Patreon are monthly donations. But if you prefer to give a single donation, you can use PayPal or Patreon. Links to all these options can be found at brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Thanks again for your support. I don't usually remember to mention the free newsletter, which is how you can get show notes automatically every month. You can sign up for that also on the website. But today I need to share some important information for those of you who are currently getting the newsletter. For several years, I've been using MailChimp. But as I get ready to launch my new coaching business, I'm going to be moving to a different provider. I want to take the opportunity to update my mailing list so you will be getting several mailings warning you that this change is coming and giving you the opportunity to opt in to the new version. You will have complete control over what comes your way, but at some point, if you don't opt in, you won't continue to receive newsletters. If you happen to listen to this after this has already happened, all you have to do is sign up again and you'll get the new version. I apologize for the inconvenience, but I want to make sure that the newsletter is going to people who actually want it. Last but not least, I want to remind you about the free Brain Science mobile app for iOS, Android, and Windows phones. It's a great way to access premium content since that doesn't appear in regular podcasting apps like Apple Podcasts. But if you aren't a premium subscriber, the app still gives you access to extra content. This month, I'm going to be including my 2007 interview with Dr. Norman Doidge as extra content only on the mobile app. Next month, I plan to begin a series of episodes exploring the neuroscience of consciousness. Until then, I hope you will check out my other podcasts, Books and Ideas, and Grain Rainbows. I particularly want to mention this month's episode of Books and Ideas because it is an interview with psychologist Pete Etchells talking about his book, Lost in a Good Game, Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do for Us. If you're interested in what the science actually shows about the effects of video gaming, you won't want to miss this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk with you again next month. Brain Science is copyright 2019 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.